Hi, I'm Alan Altman. And I'm Dave Juskow. And this is Billy Joel A to Z. Sitting here in Avalon Looking at the pouring rain the Summertime has come and gone And everybody's home again Closing down for the season I found the last of the souvenirs Hello everybody and welcome to Billy Joel A to Z Famous last words is the 10th and final song of Billy's 12th and final album entitled River of Dreams, released on August 10th, 1993. Billy Joel has stated himself that River of Dreams was designed to stand as his final record and famous last words would therefore stand as his final song ever recorded for a studio album. As sad as that may be. All right, Elon, in the rankings, Christopher Bonanno's 2015 Vulture New York Magazine article out of 121 songs. Where does Christopher Bonanno's place Billy Joel's final song ever recorded for an album? Well, I think that he'll give this song points for being a really good way to wrap up the career. But as a song itself, I think it's lacking in some ways. So that'll knock it down a bit. I'm just going to throw a number out. 85. Pretty close. 63. And uh, apparently one above. And so it goes. I guess he ranks all the final songs at the exact same place. (laughs) They're all in the 60s. That's his whole method. (laughs) He says, these are the last words I have to say. Joel's last song and his final studio album, apart from some one off releases, which, of course, we don't like to discuss a friendly, affectionate thanks and bye for now song. And well, all right. It's not side two of Abbey Road, but it's not hateable either. Pretty good way of putting it, I suppose. Uh, Glenn Gambo, where do you think he puts it? Uh, he's a wild card. I'm going to say he puts it at 42. Oh, my God. You were right on 45. <laughs> well done. Well done. But the fans rank it 89th. They don't care for it, probably just because of the anger of being the final song. That's 89 out of 121 songs. The fans rank famous last words at 89. You know, I don't remember this song. The River of Dreams album is strange for me, probably for a lot of other people, I guess, or maybe not you. You heard it at a different time in your life. You all know my story about all about soul and all that kind of stuff with Saturday Night Live stuff. But maybe I just never listened to the album as a whole. When I was playing the song, I really didn't know what it was. And then when I heard it, I well, I loved it. I really I love it. I love it as a last song. And if I have to compare it to if you're starting with the nylon curtain and the, in the sense of his last songs on the album being where he might have thought just in case I don't do another album. These would be the songs. If you're choosing from where's the orchestra, keeping the face getting closer. And so it goes, this is definitely my favorite last song that he would ever do. It, it moves better. It's a little bit more uplifting and yet (laughs) still melancholy at the same time in what it's describing. And it's so fascinating I guess I, I must have not heard it in a long time. Listening to the words, these are the last words I'll have to say. When I mean, the out of all his songs, this song has the most meaning possibly of any song ever recorded because he really stuck to his guns. It's no joke. These are the last words 
you know, I'll have to say. I mean, it's it's wow. Yeah, maybe he did too good with this because if if his last song on this album was slightly worse, he might have felt like that can't be the end of the career. Maybe I got to go back into the studio and put out another album. But this wrapped it up so nicely that I think he was like, I got to stop there. It's like an athlete who wins a championship and maybe they wanted to come back for one more season. But they're like, you know what? This is the end here. And, and that's what he did on this song. I think it's interesting that it's so Billy Joel to sum up his career with a song that uses metaphors of like a beach town on Long Island closing up for the summer season. Like that, that is him. He is a beach town on Long Island. You're so right. And I mean, let's look at the lyrics of this. We don't really concentrate on the lyrics of a lot of the songs, but this one is so meaningful in every way. And it's all metaphorical, like you're saying. And like, right, you're saying it's I can still taste the wedding cake and it's sweet after all these years, all these little lines. And of course, just the regular chorus. These are the last words I have to say. That's why it took so long to write. That's fantastic. There will be other words some other day, but that's the story of my life. Unbelievable way to go out on your own terms of an, a very illustrious career. Yeah. And it's nice that it's got kind of like a contented, uplifting sort of feel like he's a little bit wistful, but not really. And whereas those other final songs of other albums, like you mentioned, a lot of them are kind of maybe sad or angry, or there's a little bit more of a depressing feel. This is like, he's finally in a good place and it's a good time for him to walk away. So it's nice that he ended on this one. Yes, and I like the opening of it too, where it's setting up for something the way the music is dum, dun, 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 dun. Like, you know, it's heading for something good. Uh, I, I, that's the way I feel about it. it. I don't know. I feel like the baseline is kind of a setup that it's going to be epic. And it really is. Let's look at some of the other words. It's so clear that standing here where I am ain't that what justice is for. I don't know what that is. But frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn anymore, is, as he has said, directly ripped off from Gone with the Wind. He is saying that the Rhett Butler actual line, which is where I believe he thought of the idea for the whole song. Yeah, that's that's one lyric that I don't like in the song, actually. That one section, I, I'm like, what does that what does it mean? Ain't that what justice is for? And then he just throws in the Gone with the Wind. It, to me, that that little line there doesn't really fit with everything. I, else. I, I don't understand the justice for I just I'm looking at it now. I'm like, wait, that was the lyric, too. Yeah, that's not good. But frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn anymore. It makes a lot of sense because that's what he's pretty much saying. I've had it. I've had it with the music industry. I've said everything I have to say. I mean, not only is he saying it in the song, but he's been documented in an interview saying, I don't know. I said everything I had to say, and I, I just had nothing left. Uh, I, I, and I guess, you know, it's funny. It, it's brilliant in many ways. So many artists don't get the message. Uh, maybe somebody like Bob Dylan should have stopped. A long time ago, he had nothing left to say, but he was just like, I've done it. I've said, I've talked about my relationships. I've talked about my poor management. I've talked about the record industry. I've talked about loves and lives and my wives and girlfriends. And I'm done. Yeah. Well, he could have gone in a literature uh, way like Led Zeppelin did and just started doing um, Lord of the Rings references in all of his songs. He could have got like 10 more albums out of that weirdness. But he, yeah, he stuck to what he knew and he sang about it and he hit the end of it. I think the one line that makes a lot of sense for where his career went after this song is when he says, with all those other songs I have to play. You know, in other words, like he knows he has to, when he has a concert, he has to play everything else he's done in his career, all these greatest hits. Like, do people even want to hear more from him? Like, all they want to hear are the 20 songs that they love to hear in concert. They don't need to hear what's going to happen in his 13th and 14th and 15th album. And so because he has 
so much other stuff he has to play. There's no need for him to write more stuff on top of that. And he's a really interesting artist because we've talked about this before. If his hero is Paul McCartney, as it is, we all know and we've seen Paul McCartney live. And, you know, it's always a great show because you really can't go wrong. But it's a fact when Paul McCartney is playing his new stuff, it's you get the golf clap applause. No one wants to hear it. Whereas we've talked about this before. It's amazing. You know, Billy Joel would just come out with so many hits that you're on the Stormfront tour and you can't wait to hear the new song. That is so rare. Whereas I guess he was like watching people like Paul McCartney and stuff. I'm like, well, I don't want to be like that where nobody wants to hear anything off the new album. Yeah, totally. And he somehow timed it at just right, probably. I mean, we'll never know because we don't know what would have come after. Maybe he would have had five more great albums in him. We just oh, don't I'm, know. I'm sure. No, we do know. He would have. He wasn't done. He was in his prime. The River of Dreams was very, very successful. It might not be, our, as fans, our favorite album, but the song River of Dreams and All About Soul did very, very well and made a lot of money. And it, it's clear when a guy can have three songs at least from an album and usually more be hits, you're, you usually have more in you, whereas most of the bands we know have one album later in their careers and it's got the one hit on it. It's very rare to have a, a perfect album every time, but Billy Joel got close many on a many occasion. Right. I'm not saying that this album wasn't great and it wasn't a commercial success. I'm saying what we don't know is what would have come after. And if he would have apparently in his mind, he thought he would have fallen off. I mean, geez, look at all the demos we've done in the unreleased tracks. It's clear you could have just taken something from the we've talked about just last week. Uh, everybody has a dream. And how he came up with that one in 71 and then retooled it or and then uh, and so it goes, I believe, one of the other final songs. Yeah, he had that five years earlier and he retooled it. He probably could have done that with a, a dozen more songs. Would, I wouldn't even be surprised if this song was written in 71 because, uh, you know, the way it has the organ music in the background sounds kind of like some of the stuff on Cold Spring Harbor. And actually, this the lyrics of this song kind of bookend nicely with the song we just did, Falling of the Rain which is about a guy who is so focused on his art that he, that his life sort of passes him by and he doesn't even notice the rain falling. And this song starts with the lyric, looking at the pouring rain. Now, you know, and it's about a guy who just ended his career and now he's able to sit and actually look at the rain. I have no hope at all that Billy actually said, I'm going to try to bookend falling of the rain with my last song. I, I'm sure it wasn't even in his mind at all because he thinks that song is corny and probably doesn't want to ever think about it. But it is interesting that he used this rain metaphor in his earliest album and then also in his final song. Yeah, I, I don't think he thought about it either, but uh, that's a good observation, especially in our show where we just talked about that last week. Yeah, maybe he was like, alphabetically, this comes right after Falling of the Rain, so I should probably talk <laughs> about rain in this song. Yes, that's what he was thinking of. One day some, some idiots are going to do a whole <laughs> podcast about this. When you were talking about the uh, the accordion, or the, rather the... Uh, what were we saying? The, the, organ. the organ, the organ in it stuff. I was thinking, you know, I've seen some other versions of the song live. He has uh, one that has uh, it's inside the actor's studio and another one in the UK. And you, a lot of times, as you know, during this podcast, I have preferred those other versions more than the studio version. But on this one, I'm the exact opposite. The studio version is 10 times better than anything he's doing just on the piano or in the other versions we've seen online. Yeah, I thought the studio version was fine for this one. I don't. I, I think it was a good arrangement. And uh, the only thing I didn't like is like the ending. I, it kind of ends in a, an abrupt way. Maybe that's what he was going for. But 
it feels like a long song that could have been shorter, but he repeats the chorus a lot throughout the end of it. You know, if these are the last words he has to say, he he does want to say them a lot, apparently. And these are the last words I have to say. It's always hard to say goodbye, but now it's time to put this book away. And that's the story of my life. That's that should have been the last paragraph. The last paragraph. These are the last words I have to say before another age goes by with all those songs. Other songs I have to play. Ain't that the story of my life? That should have been in the third to last verse. <laughs> the last verse should be, it's always hard to say goodbye. Now it's time to put the book away. And that's the story of my life. That should have. And that, and that's that. Yeah, I agree. Rearrange a little bit or just cut out those last two. And because uh, there are three choruses, basically, at the end of the song. Right. Three choruses. And the other one, it was in the middle. He had already said on top, which is great. That's why it took so long to write. There will be other words someday. Ain't that the story of my life? That could have been the last one, too. So I'm not okay with the final words he has to say is the last paragraph for such a prolific songwriter to use that as the last paragraph or verse um, I'm not okay with. And I'm going to have to talk about Billy when I meet him. <laughs> well, that's why the fans put it at 89 and not in the 60s, I guess. They were thinking like you did. I, don't I know like where I would put this song. And when, if I, you know, when I, after we finish the podcast and I do rank all the songs myself, I don't know where I'd put this song. I, I guess in the forties or fifties, maybe six, maybe the sixties. I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't put it that far down though. I, I do really like it. And I like the fact that it is a last song. There is something to say about somebody writing their own final song. Yeah. Having the knowledge. Because a lot of artists don't do that. They don't know I their think, career's over. They get the bullet no. in the back of the head, like Joe Pesci. <laughs> right. And I think it, I think that alone deserves 20 more points. 20 more ranking points. <laughs> I also like in this song how the the verses, the lyrics definitely could totally fit into a country song. If you just sang these with a twang in your voice, there's comfort in my coffee cup. Apples in the early fall. Country They're pulling right. all the moorings up and gathering at the Legion Hall. Oh, you're so right with that one. The whole thing sounds country to me. Well, that's also funny. He has the, the, the Labor Day parade in it, too, which is always the end of, you know, signifies the end of summer. And so but that's what the whole song is. It's signifying the end of a season, again, as the metaphor for the end of your career, because he's saying they're stacking the chairs on the tabletops, hang the sheets on the chandeliers. They're putting away for the season the Overlook Hotel. <laughs> yeah, totally. And it's nice that he uses summer as the metaphor here, because at this point he was 44, 45 years old. So he knew he wasn't he's not going to say, like, I'm in the December of my life here. No, he's, he's going for the fall of his life. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to say was I feel like this is a nice companion piece to Allentown. Really? Because I feel like Allentown is a song about people who are getting laid off. They're depressed. And then this is a song about a happy retirement. So they're both about ending your work. But this one has this nice kind of upbeat feel in Allentown. They're all going to commit suicide. That's interesting. I never thought about that before. That's excellent. Elon, let me ask you a question. I mean, here we go. Famous last words. It's his last song. Would he ever do this live in concert? Yeah, he did. He played it a few times, not a lot. It's actually funny because you feel like this might be a song he would just put at the end of all of his concerts. Yeah. If it's not a fan favorite, it just wraps it all up nicely. Like, why not just throw it out there? Yeah, it's a good ending song. So according to setlist.fm, he's played it live three times. Once in 93, once in 99, once in 2006. That does not count the 1999 version from Inside the Actor's Studio, which we right. have no, video we're not counting from. that, yes. Uh, and there's actually video or audio of all of these performances. The 93 one is the one that's that British TV show, which we also have a video of. That was like a, a short no, version. Of the they're song. not as good as the studio version. Yeah. 
Then in 99, he played it at a concert in the middle of the show. Actually, he didn't play it at the end. It was just smack in the middle. You know, that's of the probably bad. And well, that's right. Well, that's yeah, because because this song is probably very personal to him. You certainly couldn't do it at the garden because it would have to be like I'm retiring and this is my last song at the garden. Then you could maybe play that. But, you know, if he's doing the last song at the garden, he's probably going to do Where's the Orchestra or some, something sad, which would be really annoying. That's no, that'd why be I, like awesome. song so I would love much. to hear him say that, play that right at the end and then walk off. Lights go dark. Yeah, um, but this is a better song for that, for to leave at least us leaving the concert feeling better about ourselves and not wanting to die that Billy Joel just retired. <laughs> well, that's what he did in the 2006 show. He he played two encores that night. At the end of this, the last encore, he played this song. And that was the first show of his world tour that year. So I wonder if he was planning on having this end the shows and he then made an executive decision that it wouldn't be in any further shows after that one. Yeah, probably maybe it might maybe it bums him out. Yeah, or maybe he just noticed the crowd just didn't really care. It didn't get whatever response he wanted out of it. Well, so maybe it makes it the crowd angry. It's like, thanks. Oh, yeah, we just remembered. You don't record any new albums. Thanks a lot, jerk off. So maybe <laughs> yeah. that's the problem. You know, Maybe there's there a big riot after that, that show that we don't know about. <laughs> they were just tearing seats out and smashing people <laughs> on the head. Well, Dave, it's time for the trivia portion of the show. Do you have a stumper for me? Yes, I have a very interesting one, although I think I worded it badly. I really tried to make it come out sentence structure-wise, but I think you're going to be upset with me. Okay. A few artists sang a swan song before they decided not to record anymore for various reasons. Although the release date can be considered controversial, what is the name of the album and song that technically ended Billy's Heroes' String of Brilliance? Oh, man, I got to hear the whole thing again. Uh, there's a lot there. Although the release date can be considered controversial, what is the name of the album and song that technically ended Billy's greatest heroes string of brilliance? Okay, so first let's figure out the band, his heroes. Right. So it's it's the Beatles. Right. And I guess their last album was Abbey Road. Exactly. But that's controversial because they because, recorded. Um, exactly. So you got that right. What's the last song off Abbey Road? Um, the end. Exactly. Well done. You got that completely right. And here are these guys that knew this was it. They wrote a song called The End. And what is better than and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make which is, I guess, Billy Joe is trying to say, ain't that the story of my life? Not as good. Uh, that's his last <laughs> line. Not as prolific. But boy, how about that, right? When you write your own, the end, and then you have some of the greatest last lines in recording history. Yeah, and that whole second half of Abbey Road, the whole medley that goes on, it like builds to that great moment. They really so, nailed it. Without knowing it, on the opposite end of that, Nirvana, their last album, that great song, All Apologies, fascinating last song ever, even though they didn't know it was their last song, but it seems like almost they did because it's great. And let alone that's called All Apologies. I mean, Jesus Christ, right? It's like maybe he did know. I mean, the guy committed suicide technically, even though we think Courtney did it. But, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe he knew. Maybe he knew uh, this was it for me. I need out. And then 
the best example, David Bowie. We all know he recorded the last album knowing full well he was dying. He put it out two days before he died. He like waited long enough. He's like, Doc, I'm ready. Put out that Black Star album. And the last song that he ever did that he ever recorded on this album is called I Can't Give Everything Away. And if you listen to that song, it sounds like the closing credits to a movie or as we would say in this, somebody's musical career. It's unbelievable. I knew something's very wrong The pulse returns with prodigal sons With blackouts, hearts, with flowered news With skull designs upon my shoes I can't give everything Those kind of things when people make their final songs are completely fascinating. I don't have that other examples. I guess another example would be Freddie Mercury. So he was you know, dying of AIDS and he was recording the vocals on their last album. I don't know enough about that album to know what the final song was and if it was really poignant or not. That album does have songs like The Show Must Go On, which is like this huge epic thing about, you know, the show having to go on, even though this guy is really sick and you can't even believe he has vocals as good as he does that he's doing these while lying on his deathbed. It's pretty incredible. So Queen is probably another good example of that. Yeah, you're right. And it's, I wish if the show must go on was the last one, that would be a perfect example. You may be right. It is the last track. Oh, well, isn't that fascinating? So how did, so there it is. I guess maybe they had the band knew and he knew and great example. Elon, right off the top of your head. Well done. The show must go on, Dave. The show must go on. <laughs> So do you have a trivia question for me? Yeah, I do. This is, I don't know, this might be a tough one, but it's about this song specifically. Um, in the lyrics of Famous Last Words, there are references to two other Billy Joel song titles. What other song titles are in the lyrics of Famous Last Words? It's hmm. tough. Oh, that song Labor Day. <laughs> and that other song, Legion Hall. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The two best songs off The Stranger, as we know. Uh, I don't, I don't, I, I want to look at the lyrics, but I, I can't think about that. That would be cheating, I guess. Well, oh. you could look. I mean, what, what the heck? Should I? Oh, yeah. that song, Stack the Chairs on the Tit. No, wait, that's not right. Uh, boy, <laughs> I'm looking at the lyrics. I'm looking at the lyrics now. I don't, I don't know, Elon. Mm. Give me a, tell me. I'm fascinated. This is a great trivia question. Well, he says my life in the song. Oh, you know what? That's not fair, <laughs> but okay. Yes. And what else? Uh, and souvenir. Oh, I great trivia question. That Except for the my life. But all right. That was, but it's still good, though. That was good. That's good. All right. When, when I was first listening to it and I heard him say souvenirs in the first verse, I was like, wow, maybe like this whole song is like references to all of his career. But then there's really nothing else there besides that one line. Yeah. You, you know, that could have been a really interesting idea to have him reference all the other songs and stuff. That would have been cool. But again, he probably, even though he knew he was ending, like he said, he finished the song and then he was like, you know what? I think I am ending. But I think if he really knew and put it together that this really was going to be the last, he might have drawn from other things, kind of pulled a 
we didn't start the fire of his own career, which would have been which he should actually just do now. Yeah. <laughs> we, you know, if you're going to give us Christmas and Fallujah and all my life, do that for us. Give us your we didn't start the fire uh, falling of the rain. Everybody loves you now. Everybody, you know, I mean, that would yeah. be uh, super fun. <laughs> If that doesn't exist, someone should definitely do that. I want to hear every single 124 Billy Joel songs li- listed in one song. Elon, you're the parody guy. This is your job now. It's going to be the so final hard. Episode. So hard. Elon will do a We Didn't Start the Fire to all of Billy Joel's songs. Let's put a pin in that because maybe when we get to the W's, that might be the parody. It might just have to be his entire catalog. Interesting. I will put a mental pin in it. Well, Dave, it's time for the, uh, what do we call it? <laughs> it's time for the Weird Alon yeah. <laughs> parody of the day. And my parody for Famous Last Words is called Kramer's Last Words. Okay. <laughs> well, I, uh, you know, I was sitting there smiling, like, what has he got today? And uh, if it's a Seinfeld reference, I'm all in. Kramer's Last Words. Heckled at the comedy store. Kramer yelled the N-word. He ain't getting booked no more. He's more dead than the dodo bird. Those were the last words he had to say. (laughs) Because he said a racial slur last night. If he shut his mouth, he'd have a career today. But he let the expletives fly. Oh, that's the end? Yeah. Hey, now. But he let the expletives fly. Well, uh, do you you know what that's from? Do you you get the reference of that last line? Let the expletives fly. Yeah. Does sound familiar, but no. Kramer has he goes to the dentist. And that's a Mel Torme one. Yeah, that's not it either, is it? Yeah, it's the Mel Torme because his mouth is numb. Oh, right. And he's like, when I'm in there, I let the expletives fly. (laughs) That's right. Well, great. You got all the all the ref- the proper references and everything. That was okay. <laughs> As you know, the listeners like the the parodies much more than I do. And they get angry at me for like, don't make fun of Elon. His parodies are the best. Yeah. But thanks, making thanks, fun thanks, is what listeners. we do. That's right. I hope people can know the backstory of this, that Michael Richards <laughs> I was gonna yelled say, the N-word at the comedy store and that ruined his career post-Seinfeld. Did it, though? Because I was it thinking did. about that. Now, certainly it did, but it seemed like he could probably come back because I don't know if you remember, but on Curb Your Enthusiasm, they tried to work it back where they kind of worked on it and worked on fixing his reputation. But I think he isn't a good person to work with. If you watch any of the outtakes of Seinfeld, you'll see how angry he gets when people flub lines or are unprofessional. I think people just decided they didn't want to work with Michael Richards before that N-word situation. Yeah, his career might have been a little bit more salvageable if he was more likable, is what you're saying. That's what I'm saying, or easier to work with. If you really watch any of those outtakes and they're all laughing and having a good time, he looks really angry. And nobody has said he's hard to work with or anything, and they obviously are already laughing at him and with him. But that's what I noticed, and I think it must have come out or something that that's the problem. Or maybe he just isn't, you know, that's a character that is hard to get rid of. <laughs> I mean, it's really, that's a good typecasting one that, you know, unless you're going to really go a different direction, it's yeah. going to be tough. The only other thing he that I know of that he did during his Seinfeld years was the movie Airheads. 
Oh, I don't even know. Was he different? Was he a different character? He was like uh, the uptight guy at the record label who was trying, you know, those those three like airhead rock stars, Adam Sandler and Brendan oh, Fraser. Right. And I forget who the third one was. They take over the radio station to get their their record played on it. And they pretend that they have guns and that they're holding them all hostage. And Michael Richards is the executive who like hide, he's like trying to hide from them. And he's like crawling through the the air ducts. So he's like a really like uptight Michael Richards, but he still has a lot of physical comedy in that role. You know, after Seinfeld, he had a I think he had a detective show on for a while and it just didn't work. I guess they just don't consider him a leading man. It's generous of you to say for a while. I think that was on for a very short while. (laughs) Yeah, maybe two or three episodes. So the people have spoken and they just don't care for uh, any of other Kramer's work. I feel that way about Jason Alexander. I couldn't. This guy rubs me the wrong way all the time. I don't like his acting unless he's George. You just I, I've seen his other stuff and he's to me, he's just very dull. I think he's fine. I, I give him a pass. I can see him in other stuff without only seeing George. It's not that I'm saying I'm only seeing George. I just don't like him as uh, I just don't like his acting. And he, I think he thinks he's much funnier than he is because of Seinfeld. And I think that's an issue. He's not funny. <laughs> yeah. And well, you can see he, he really the character got good in Seinfeld when he realized that it was like Larry David and he could just kind of mimic what Larry does. Meanwhile, in Seinfeld, I would use some of his acting and his comedic timing as examples for what you should do for being a comedic timing. But I think that is just lost on any other character I've seen him play. And I've seen him play multiple other things. But is there anything funnier than him running out of the bathroom yelling, say Vandalay Industries! With his pants down? Absolutely not. No, (laughs) you're absolutely right. No, it's he's as George Costanza, he's unbelievable like for billy joel's other work after river of dreams fantasies and delusions all my life and christmas in fallujah we will continue to bring them up the faltering of billy joel's career after he said goodbye that he chose to come back for those three things thanks for nothing famous last words i say (laughs) oh those are the last words for dave on this podcast we're gonna be retooling next week (laughs) well folks that was famous last words if you like our podcast be sure to go to apple and give us five stars we release new episodes every tuesday and thursday so make sure you hit subscribe so you never miss a single song Follow us on social media at Billy Joel A to Z and give us some feedback. Was this a good wrap up to Billy's career? Should he end his concert with the song? And should we have saved this song to be our final podcast episode? Until next time, I'm Alan Altman. I'm Dave Juskow. And this is Billy Joel A to Z.